Philadelphia waiting on the next train. Young boy is in the restroom and witnesses a terrible crime, thus the name of the movie, Witness. Well, grizzled veteran detective John Book, played by Harrison Ford, is called in to work the case. He realizes right away that the little boy is in danger because the perpetrator of the crime actually saw him uh, and is going to be hunting him down. And so John Book, Harrison Ford's playing him, uh, travels back with uh, mother and boy to Amish uh, land in Pennsylvania where Harrison Ford is going to assimilate to help hide the witness. So there he is, Harrison Ford, with this Amish-looking hat and his Amish kind of dress, uh, looking very much out of place, except for the way he's dressed. And one day he participates in a barn raising. Young, newlywed couple, as is Amish practice in many places, is going to build this barn in a single day, and Harrison Ford's going to be part of it. What you don't know about Harrison Ford is that he was actually a carpenter before he became famous as an actor in Hollywood, so he knows what he's doing up there on the rafters as they build. The neat thing about the scene to me is that everybody has a part to play. Little kids, they hand timber up to the older kids and dads who are up on the construction itself. All the women folk, of course, prepare the food that's going to feed those who are doing the rest of the work. Everybody has a part to play. And before the day is done, that young couple has a barn something that otherwise would have taken them years to accomplish, and what they could have built on their own, they couldn't have built that well, and certainly couldn't have done it that fast. I see that picture, I think about that scene, and i got to tell you, it makes me wistful. I just think, what if, what if that were us, and each one of us came prepared to contribute to what we are doing together as a church. It also makes me think about what Paul says about building churches here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm assuming you've read 1 Corinthians before, and you probably already know Paul is really frustrated with these people. Loves them, but he's frustrated with them. Frustrated because they are split to pieces, divided along the lines of personality. Some say, I'm of Apollos. He's more impressive. Some say, I'm of Paul. Others say, I'm of Peter. Others simply say, I'm of Christ. Those are the right ones, I think. But they're divided along personality lines. They're divided so much so that some of them are suing each other in public courts. Paul says, why would you take your cases as Christians to a pagan court and ask for pagan judges to adjudicate? You're doing wrong. They're divided by divorce like many are. They're uh, divided because they're arguing over what food is appropriate to eat or not eat. They're even arguing over whether Paul is a real apostle or not in chapter 9. They're divided by the way they take the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper, which was always a love feast, is actually just a feast in their case, not much love there, because of a division between rich and poor. So the rich have rich fare to eat and share, and the poor are outside. Then when it comes time for the part that you and I call the Lord's Supper, they call them in and they have the Lord's Supper, and Paul says that's not the Lord's Supper at all. It's not the love feast that the Lord intended. They're even divided by the way they're abusing and using their own spiritual gifts, something that ought not be a source of division, but it is. And all of that inspires me to say something nice about Corinth now. The rule in our household is, uh, Beth says, if you're going to criticize, you have to say three nice things about this person you just criticized. So now I feel obligated to say three nice things about Corinth. 
Uh, it worked like this. Uh, if we hear Rachel, our oldest daughter, when they lived at, ha- at the house, she's 32 now, so we don't get to do this often. But when they lived at home, if Rachel was saying something bad about Joel, Beth would say, now you have to say three nice things about your brother. And Rachel would say something like, well, at least he's not twins, which is, you know, don't get any points for that. So three nice things about Corinth. Well, uh, we can say nice things about Corinth, but this is Paul who's doing the criticizing. So I don't feel so obligated to look past all the things that are worthy of criticism. Paul himself has got to be scratching his head looking at this church that he planted. If you want to know the details, you read Acts 18. And he's saying, where did I go wrong? Why is that not growing like it should? And here in chapter 3, he addresses something of the mechanics of how that church was planted. If it's ever right to use the word mechanics when you're talking about church, and it probably isn't. But it begins at verse 6 of chapter 3, where he's talking about their individual roles. Paul says he planted, Apollos watered, each one did their part, but ultimately in the end it's God who gives the increase. Makes me think how each of us brings something different, a different tool in our hand, from a picnic basket to a hammer to build this barn that we're raising. We all bring different gift sets to bear on what we're doing together. Uh, Anybody ever heard of the CARE profile? Go to that next slide. C-A-R-E. There are creators, there are Um, advancers, then there are refiners, and there are, does it say executors? It sounds like they execute it, as in they kill it. So there are people who create an idea, there are others who advance an idea, but the creators and the advancers often aren't skilled at refining an idea and then implementing it or executing it. So it takes all kinds. Paul is a creator-advancer, and you could overuse a business model too much, But Paul basically admits, I planted what Apollos watered, but both of us were on the same page, and ultimately we give credit to whom credit is due, the God who made this thing grow. In case we're not clear about what it is we're building, he goes on in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building, and then skipping down to verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And the God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. In other words, here we are trying to work together to build a house made of people in which God would choose to dwell. That's our objective. How do we do that? Back to verse 10. Paul puts in a good word for intentionality without using the word intentional. He he says this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. Expert builder. He's careful. He's thoughtful. He's deliberate. And even then, you know how it turned out despite the fact that he was careful and thoughtful and deliberate. They still had problems. But it's still right to be careful and thoughtful and deliberate. Verse 11, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Sounds very important, doesn't it? The foundation is all important. If you don't build on the right foundation, you're going to find yourselves constantly having to rework the foundation. And if you've ever done that before, had to actually rework a foundation in the house in which you live, it's very 
difficult. You don't want some home inspector to tell you uh, you have to redo the foundation. Because basically you may have to scrape the, the house off and rebuild the foundation or jack it up somehow and then redo the foundation. Not an easy thing to do. Don't redo the foundation. The foundation has already been laid and it is Jesus Christ. Much easier said than done though, isn't it? What does that even mean? Here I was, a young missionary planting churches in Africa, asking that question. What does it mean to found people, build churches on this foundation that is Christ? So important that in this non-literate society, we would have them say it back to us. Repeat after me. It's a tribal language. They would say. There is no other foundation which anyone can lay other than the one already laid. And I hope that by saying it over and over again, it would help accomplish this, to found this thing on Christ. That the whole thing is built on conviction about Him at the center of our faith, not around the edges of our faith, but at the center of our faith is this conviction that Jesus of Nazareth is who He claims to be. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we are who we are. His relationship with the Father is the relationship to which we aspire. We want a relationship with God like he has. We want a connection with God like his. We want to be prayerful people like he was a prayerful person. We want to practice those spiritual disciplines like he practiced those spiritual disciplines to nurture that connection like a branch attached to the vine, and that's the foundation of what we do. We want to treat people on the outside of these walls like he treated people who were outside his own circle. We want to treat one another within the walls the way he treated people in his inner circle and the little bit larger circle, the the whole thing, everything we do is built on that foundation. There is no other. And then the question is, what do you add on top of that? Verse 12, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, that sounds like good stuff, versus wood, hay, or straw, which is appropriate in certain constructions, but not this one. Wood, hay, or straw, not durable materials. If you use the cheap stuff or use the good stuff, the day, with a capital D, the day of testing is going to expose the quality of your work. If it lasts, great, praise God. If it falls apart, then you've built with cheap materials. You shouldn't have done that which is one, among many other reasons, not to hop on the latest bandwagon, some trendy thing that other people seem to be doing that seems to be working for them. That's not what we want to do. Don't want to be trendy. We want to be grounded in something more significant, more durable than that. But I understand why we're drawn to learn from others. And in many ways, that's a good idea. We hear about some church somewhere else that's just growing great guns, and we think, well, if we could just do what they're doing then surely we would grow too. So we buy books like Purpose Driven Church. That's like 20 years ago now. Church in California, big community church, Rick Warren's church. And we, we try to, can you go to the next slide? Uh, we try to do what they do. Go to, click, click it again and they're very organized. I mean, if you're a new member of that church, you know if you're at first base, second base, third base, or how to get home. It's all very well mapped out, very well uh, thought through, nice vision cast uh, with clear core values and a strategy and a mission, all of that which I think is admirable and probably something we can learn from. I went to a conference a few years ago 
uh, organized by the people who wrote this book. The book is called Missional Church. The idea is, do you want to be an attractional church? A kind of church that basically says, if we build it, they will come. Let's make our church so attractive that people out there would want to come to it. Or do we build a missional church where we ourselves are equipped to testify about Christ in our own spheres of influence and draw people to Christ that way? Missional versus attractional. You could make the case that those aren't necessarily incompatible. You could do both at the same time. But we go to missional church conferences. We read missional books about how to return to this mission of God and make that the center of our focus, which I get. Read stuff by Andy Stanley, the big pastor at huge North Point uh, Community Church in North uh, Atlanta. And I, I read his book deep and wide and thought there were things to learn about it. An unapologetically attractional church. We read all that kind of stuff and, and can learn from it, sure. Even business books. I'm not fond, again, of quoting business books, but People read Good to Great 13 years ago, so I felt out of the loop if I didn't, and I did, and I thought he had some good things to say. If you want to take your company from being a good company to being a great company, or your organization, if you feel like it's good but it could be better, then among other things, you're going to have to develop some collective discipline. It's not just individual discipline. You're going to have to develop some discipline as a group, some collective discipline, people guided by discipline, thought in pursuit of discipline, action, he would say. This is what it's going to take. Recently read a book by Will Mancini called Unique Church, which I like because he's saying church leaders like us, we read all these books and then we just kind of lift their plans out and just apply them where we are and we don't appreciate the uniqueness of a Lamar Avenue. What's unique about you? And Will Mancini would say, find what's unique about you and figure out how to fan that into flame rather than just do this cookie-cutter thing of adopting what somebody else has done somewhere else. And having said all that, we read, we strategize, we pray, we organize, and then sometimes it still doesn't work. It doesn't work. Church doesn't grow, and the leaders beat themselves up for it. I get that too, because I've read verse 14. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, to you, that may sound theoretical. It may also sound a little harsh. Is he saying that if you're out there, you're planting churches, and the church that you plant actually doesn't survive, then God's going to hold you accountable for it? It sounds that way. I hope that's not true. I was a church planter in rural Kenya. Some of the churches I planted haven't made it. Now, others have really thrived and multiplied and are doing well. Have elders. I go back once a year to do six elders conferences in six different areas of the Kalenjin Speaking Fellowship, uh, where we began with none. Now there are 150 congregations. It's really impressive. But there are others who just burned up. And I escaped as one escaping through the flames. 25 years old. I'm thinking of a church called Bridetwa, down in a, a, a valley area, that valley area, where there was no other church of any kind. I mean, there wasn't a, a Catholic church, a Protestant church w- within probably 30 miles of there. Ours was the only kind. About 50 people had come to faith in Christ, and then almost immediately thereafter, a drought hit, a two-year drought. In rural Africa, one of the ways you survive drought is you take whatever little food the government will give you, or some aid organization like USAID will pass out, you give that 
grain, you turn that into mush and you give that to your kids. And maybe you eat as an adult every second or third day. In the meantime, you make beer out of honey, and there was plenty of local honey because lots of bees down in that valley, and then you numb the pain of the hunger with the beer. A long time, I was doing my best as a 25-year-old missionary try to help these people just hang on with their finger, by their fingernails to this newfound faith. And they didn't. The whole thing burned up. And I escaped as one escaping through the flames. That's how I got my first ulcer. I've only had one, but I nicknamed it Beretwa, the name of that church. I think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. He's talking about all these things he's had to suffer as an apostle. I mean, some of them just sound terrible. The persecution he's endured, the times he's been, been beaten, the amount of days he's gone without food, the number of nights he's spent in the sea. And at the end of that long list, he says this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? Sounds like Paul may have had an ulcer of his own, nicknamed Corinth. Who is weak that I don't feel weak? Who doesn't fall into sin that I don't inwardly burn? Our elders met on Wednesday night and dealt with an adulterous situation. And you could just feel the cloud descend on us. It just feels so heavy. Oh, please God, why won't people do the right thing instead of the wrong thing? And the havoc they wreak on one another, on their families, on their children, on this church family, when they act out in sin. Who is weak that we're not weak? Who doesn't fall into sin that we just don't inwardly burn? So that tells me that even if you build carefully, thoughtfully, intentionally, you lay it all out, you have your vision and you have your core values, which is a good idea. As intentional as you can be, people have to do the right thing. And if people don't do the right thing, this isn't going to grow. Anybody here who's a parent of an adult child or multiple adult children, you know that hard as you try to do it right, you're going to make mistakes. As intentional as you seek to be, you're not going to get it all right. And sometimes, even though you did your very best, they're not going to, they're not going to get it right as adults. Still doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be intentional. I do believe we have much to learn from our spiritual ancestors uh, whose stories we read in the book of Acts. I'd like to turn there and read a bit. doesn't mean that we're going to be able to eavesdrop on some strategic planning session. This is how you cast a vision. This is how you organize core values. This is how you articulate that vision to your congregation. You know, we're not going to sit in on some meeting like that. Unless Acts 15, what scholars call the Jerusalem Conference, is such a meeting. And it's not exactly like that, but at least they realize we've got a problem, a whole Jew-Gentile problem here. And if we don't solve this problem now, the gospel will never spread beyond Judea. And non-Jewish people will never be able to embrace it. I dare say a much more difficult problem to sort through than any problem you at Lamar Avenue have ever faced. And they managed to find compromise in Acts 15 and work that out. So we're not going to necessarily see exactly how to organize a vision process, but we have much to learn here, much to learn from the patterns we see there. And I realize when I use the word pattern to a bunch of church Christ people, depending on how old you are, some of you are going to start twitching. 
These patterns make us nervous. Go to the next slide. We get nervous about the micro-patterns we grew up with. We grew up with folks who said the New Testament is the Constitution. Acts especially spells out some of the details of that Constitution, particularly the details of what ought to happen in a Sunday morning assembly. So follow the Constitution. Now, at some points, the Constitution only gives you examples. We called them apostolic examples, and some places... We can only infer that this is an example that we're intended to follow. How many of you remember the old debate called, when is an example binding? Just a show of hands. Does anybody remember that debate? Nobody remembers it. Well, one person. When is an example binding? When I was in college, we would sit around having this debate. I wonder, when, when is an example binding? If they had the Lord's Supper the first night in the upper room, should we have the Lord's Supper in an upper room? Should we build a balcony and all ascend to it when it's time for the Lord's Supper? When are examples binding? Then I remember coming across this quote in a book that was originally called Christianity Restored when it was first published in 1835 by Alexander Campbell. Later on, they called it the Christian system because Christianity Restored, as if it's done, we're finished, that sounded a little arrogant. So now it's just the Christian system, which in fact is a pretty good book about about proper biblical interpretation. But he says this, among other things, As a constitution, the New Testament prescribes, arranges, and secures all the privileges, duties, obligations, honors, and, yes, let's all say together, emoluments, which I'd never heard that word before I read this. It means benefits, perks, salary, the emoluments of the king and the subjects. So the constitution, which includes Acts of the Apostles, spells out all the details and as well as the benefits of those of us who are citizens of this kingdom. He goes on to say that any time we find the apostles doing something, that we should follow to the letter their example, assuming that behind that example there is a command of Jesus. Even if we don't have a record of the command of Jesus that might have prompted that example, if it's an example of the apostles doing it, we have to assume it has the force of command. And then off we go, next 200 years almost, debating the place of commands uh, about patterns and so forth. You know, i got to say three nice things about patterns now. Because there are nice things to say about patterns. I don't like, go to the next slide, I don't like patternism. The patternism that inevitably feeds legalism is dangerous and dishonest with the biblical text, which I don't believe was intended to spell out in every detail exactly what we're supposed to do on Sunday morning. We talk as if most of these tales feed what we do only on Sunday morning, one of our 168 hours of the week. But, on the other hand, our rejection of patternism has also fed a kind of rejection of big-picture patterns, which is not healthy, because there are some patterns worth paying attention to, aren't there? There's much we can learn from our spiritual ancestors here, much we can learn about things like fellowship, which I'll talk about during the sermon this morning. You talk about spirit-driven fellowship, the Spirit of God present among people, binding them together, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, binding them together in brand new ways. We need to copy the pattern of some spirit-driven fellowship. We could talk about the growth. What can we learn from our spiritual forebears we read about in Acts, about how we grow, how they grew? What would we learn about service? It wasn't that long ago as Acts opens. I mean, just a couple of months ago, 
Surely the image is still burned in their memory of Jesus with a towel around his waist and water poured in the basin, going from disciple to disciple, washing their feet, and then saying, if this is how I've treated you, then this is how you ought to treat one another. And that culture of service, humble, mutual service that permeated the early church is impressive. We ought to embrace that pattern, shouldn't we? The generosity with which they gave. I mean, to have all things in common, to pool their resources. Yeah, what if the elders get up and say, well, the new vision requires us, each one of us to bring our paycheck at the end of the month and give it to the elders, and then we'll redistribute the wealth to make sure that there are no needy people among us. And let me assure you that's not part of the vision, or at least not what I've heard so far. Uh, I don't think they're thinking that. But that kind of spirit-inspired generosity I find impressive at the very least. And then spirit-driven witness. God putting Philip in the path of the Ethiopian. God appearing to Saul on the road. God guiding Saul to the Macedonians and then to the Corinthians. It's spirit-led. God putting people in our path and expecting us to open our mouths and testify. Testify about Jesus of Nazareth at the center of our faith. That word testify in Greek, it's not always a good idea to tell you Greek words, but you know this Greek word. The word testify in Greek is martyres, from which we get our word martyr. Because so often, to testify about your faith in the first century meant you'd be killed for it. Is there something we can learn from our spiritual forebears about patterns of behavior that would teach us about how to build a spirit-driven church? You bet. You bet there are. Don't want to be blinded to the bigger patterns because we're looking for little bitty micro-patterns. And then there are two really big, big patterns that drive those two, at least two. Aren't there? One is the conviction. The conviction about Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, that compelled them to do everything they did. And then there is the the powerful, palpable presence of the Spirit of God. I'm not Pentecostal. The powerful, palpable presence of the invisible God who dwelled among His people that, that drove everything. It was just 10 days after the ascension. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He tells him, In Acts 1, go back to Jerusalem. Just wait till the Holy Spirit comes on you from on high. They go back to Jerusalem, and for the next 10 days, I don't think they know what they're waiting for. Haven't experienced this yet. And then you turn the page, you're in Acts 2, and boom! They have Pentecost, spirit descends. They start testifying about Christ, even in languages they themselves have not studied, so that people there can hear that testimony in their own language. Very impressive. And then the rest, as you know, It's history as they spread out around the world, as they experience there, first in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and and to the ends of the earth, spirit-driven fellowship. They experience spirit-driven, spirit-guided, spirit-prompted, spirit-inspired growth, spirit-compelled service, spirit-prompted generosity, spirit-led witness. At Downtown Church of Christ, where I'm an elder, couple of years ago, we started through another vision process and came up with these five core values, which are really those core values. So today, our congregation could tell you, if you ask them, what are the five core values of the Downtown Church of Christ? And they would say, connect, grow, serve, give, and go. I'm preaching a, a second series on those five things right now, but I'm not even talking about those words. So I want people to know this is not about memorizing five words. 
not about memorizing five words. It is about locking arms, forming a straight line, and marching forward by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what God has called us as a church body to do. And if we're ever going to do that right, it is going to require collective discipline. Discipline people, guided by discipline, theology, thought, in pursuit of a discipline, directed kind of action. I'm not the first person to point it out, but if the apostles have been here this morning to overhear me talking about what we can learn from them in Acts of the Apostles, I feel pretty confident that they would correct me and they would say, uh, I don't know whose idea that was to call that Acts of the Apostles. Why would you give us credit? Peter heals a lame man in John 3, except Peter doesn't heal him. Jesus heals him. (laughs) And Peter and John say, why do you stand here looking at us as if it's by our own power that we were able to heal the man? It is by faith in the name of Jesus that this man stands before you healed. I think they would be incredulous to hear us call this Acts of the Apostles. We ought to be calling it Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we ourselves are in search of Acts of the Holy Spirit. We want to be, I showed you a picture before, of a sail. I came here once before, I don't remember when, and talked about the Holy Spirit one weekend and talked about how we can adjust our sails to cooperate with the Spirit of God for individual personal growth. Well, what's true of individuals is true for all of us. As a church, we must learn to adjust our sails and catch the Holy Spirit, catch the wind that is the Spirit of God that would compel us forward. So, grab your hammer or your picnic basket, strap on your tool belt, and by the grace of God and by His power through His Spirit who indwells us, let us build this Spirit-driven church. Let's pray.